Don't let diaper rash come between you and your baby. Diaper rash can be one of the worst experiences your little one has to go through, and keeping their delicate skin happy and healthy shouldn't require a spatula to apply thick, goopy treatments that can be just as irritating and uncomfortable as the diaper rash. Instead, try Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant, free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide. It was developed by a mom who is also a doctor when she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash. Use just a small amount of Dr. Mom Butt Balm to help soothe your baby's skin and feel good about making the right choice. Nothing comes between you and your baby, not even diaper rash. Check out Dr. Mom Butt Balm, available on Amazon or walmart.com. Well, hello there, Dr. Nicole here. I am thrilled to share something incredible with you today. Imagine having a treasure trove of informative, entertaining, and empowering video content about the journey to parenthood right at your fingertips. That's exactly what you get with Informed Pregnancy Plus. For less than 25 cents a day, you'll gain access to a vast subscription library filled with documentary films, web series, mind and body fitness programs, workshops, and courses covering fertility to parenting and everything in between. A few of my favorite titles are The Business of Being Born, Empowered Mama, Belly Dance for Birth, Ease into Sleep, The Afterbirth Plan, and The Core Connection. And here's the best part. For a limited time, you can gain full access absolutely free. Just visit informedpregnancy.tv to sign up. Get Informed Pregnancy Plus right now for your informed and empowered parenting journey, all from the comfort of your home. Visit informedpregnancy.tv. Again, that's informedpregnancy.tv. In this episode, you are going to learn all about the umbilical cord. Welcome to the All About Pregnancy and Birth podcast. I'm Dr. Nicole Calloway-Rankins, a board-certified OBGYN who's been in practice for nearly 15 years. I've had the privilege of helping over 1,000 babies into this world, and I'm here to help you be calm, confident, and empowered to have a beautiful pregnancy and birth. Quick note, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice. Check out the full disclaimer at drnicolerankins.com forward slash disclaimer. Now let's get to it. Hello there. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. This is episode number 209. Whether you are a new listener or a returning listener, I'm so glad you're spending some of your time with me today. So in this episode, you're going to learn about the umbilical cord. So we're going to go into what is the umbilical cord. You'll learn some issues that are or can potentially be diagnosed during pregnancy, including marginal cord insertion, velamentous cord insertion, vasa previa, and then a two-vessel umbilical cord, also known as a single umbilical artery. 
And then we'll talk about some of the things that can happen during the course of labor or that are discovered during the course of labor. And that is umbilical cord prolapse, umbilical cord compression, nuchal cord, and then knots in the umbilical cord. And then we'll end with delayed cord clamping and then umbilical cord blood banking, as well as some traditions around the world of what other folks do with the umbilical cord. Just a little bit of fun information at the end there. Now the umbilical cord connects to the placenta. And if you want to learn all about the placenta, then check out episode 180 of the podcast where I go through what the placenta is and potential issues that can happen with the placenta. That's drnicolerankins.com forward slash episode 180. And if you want to learn how to get calm, confident, and empowered for your birth, then check out the birth preparation course. The birth preparation course is my signature online childbirth education class that will get you calm, confident, and empowered to have a beautiful birth. Thousands of folks have gone through the course at this point, and I would love to serve you inside of the course as well. So head to drnicolerankins.com forward slash enroll and check out all the details there. All right, let's get into it about the umbilical cord. So first off, what is the umbilical cord? Well, the umbilical cord is a flexible tubular structure that connects your developing baby to the placenta. And the placenta is attached to the wall of the uterus. It does all of the exchange of nutrients and waste and all of that. And it's composed of two arteries and one vein. The arteries carry blood away from the baby towards the placenta, and the vein carries blood from the placenta to the baby. Now, those two arteries and one vein are encased in a gelatinous substance called Wharton's jelly. The closest that I can think of that it feels like is kind of like a gummy bear. It's a bit softer than a gummy bear, squishier than a gummy bear, but it's kind of a squishy substance. And then the umbilical cord is roughly 20, on, I should say on average, 20 to 24 inches long and a little less than an inch wide in diameter. Now, the umbilical cord is the lifeline between your baby and the placenta. It provides a pathway for the exchange of nutrients, oxygen, waste products between you and your developing baby. It also contains stem cells. Stem cells can be used in medical treatments for certain diseases and conditions, and I'll talk about the collection of those in umbilical cord blood banking towards the end. Now, as we know, during birth or right after birth, the umbilical cord is clamped and cut that separates your baby from the placenta that ends the fetal circulation. And that little stump falls off within a few days, leaving behind the belly button or umbilicus is the medical term. Um, and most people have an any, some people have an Audi, but that is a reminder of the, your baby's physical connection to you or all of our physical connection to our mothers that was happening during pregnancy. Okay. Now let's get into some of the issues that can happen with the umbilical cord, we're going to start with marginal cord insertion. So marginal cord insertion is when the attachment of the umbilical cord to the placenta is at the edge or margin of the placenta instead of at the center of the placenta. So typically 
The umbilical cord attaches to the placenta around in the center when it's on the edge. Instead, that is a marginal cord insertion. And the reason that it attaches in the center is that it allows for kind of equal distribution of blood flow and nutrients to the baby. So it starts in the center and kind of equally distributes out. Now, when the umbilical cord attaches towards the edge, it can potentially impact the blood flow and nutrients that are delivered to the baby. Now, thankfully, it's not very common. On the high end, I saw that it can happen in about up to 6% of pregnancies. So again, it's not very common and it actually usually does not cause any complications. It may be associated with an increased risk of restricted blood flow to the baby, which can then affect the baby's growth. Okay. Um, where the baby's not growing as well as we would expect. It can also um, be associated with some placenta abnormalities like placenta previa, um, and if those issues occur and cause problems during labor, then that can lead to an increased risk of cesarean birth. But in general, marginal cord insertion does not lead to any problems. Typically, if marginal cord insertion is recognized, and I should say these issues can be recognized at that middle of a pregnancy ultrasound. So the anatomy ultrasound, which happens at about 18 to 20 weeks, that is when these issues can be discovered. At that ultrasound, we look at all of the structures, including the umbilical cord. And if those things are noted, then typically we just do closer monitoring during the pregnancy with ultrasounds every four weeks, roughly, and maybe testing towards the end of pregnancy where we place you on the monitor, do testing twice a week, but even that may be considered overkill. Mostly we're going to look at serial ultrasounds to make sure the baby's growing well and there are no issues. That's for all of these umbilical cord problems. Okay, next one is velamentous cord insertion. So velamentous cord insertion is when the umbilical cord attaches to the placenta in an abnormal manner. Okay, so this is, I'm going to try and describe it as best I can, but this is something that would, is kind of helpful visually to see. But basically, tip usually the cord inserts directly into the placenta tissue, all right? And it's surrounded by placenta tissue, okay? So in a velamentous cord insertion, the cord attaches to the fetal membranes that are outside of the placenta, okay? And that means the blood vessels actually go through the membranes before they reach the placenta. And because the membranes are very thin, Okay, that leaves those blood vessels unprotected. So the placenta itself is like chunky. It, the closest I can think of is like liver, all right? So if the blood vessels are going directly into that, they're protected. But with velamentous cord insertion, they're going through the membranes, which are very thin, like as you might imagine a membrane to be. And then those unprotected blood vessels in the membranes are at risk of compression, at risk of being injured, and that can lead to complications. Now, one of the big things that velamentous cord insertion can be associated with is vasa previa, and I'm going to talk more about vasa previa in a minute. That's when the blood vessels in the umbilical cord cross or lie near the cervix that can be dangerous during labor. 
but it's also associated velamentous cord insertion with growth restriction. Sometimes the compromised blood flow and nutrient supply can affect the baby's growth. It is linked to an increased risk of preterm labor and birth. And of course, preterm birth can cause challenges for baby, depending on how baby the early is, how early the baby is born. So as far as what we do when there is velamentous cord insertion, again, similar to what I talked about before, we closely monitor the baby's growth, typically doing ultrasounds every three to four weeks. And the reason we do ultrasounds with that frequency is that that is the amount of time that is needed to accurately assess whether or not there's a change in growth. If you do ultrasounds sooner than every three to four weeks, then it's not accurate in terms of looking at whether or not the baby's growing well. So that's why we don't do ultrasounds like every week or anything like that to look for growth because we need some time to actually assess the growth. And some things we also look at on ultrasound are the blood flow. Is is the blood flow through the umbilical cord using something called Doppler, which basically uses sound waves, looks at the flow through the cord. And we looked at whether or not the flow through the cord is restricted. That's kind of a simplified way of looking at it. And depending on how that blood flow is going, there are different degrees of how that relates to fetal well-being. We look in particular at something called diastolic flow, and I'm not going to get into all of the details of that, but essentially if there's reverse in diastolic flow or absent in diastolic flow, then those are indications that there's a problem and that the baby uh, may need to be delivered. So typically, again, with velamentous cord insertion, we just monitor things. There aren't typically problems, but we do have to be careful. Now, the big thing that velamentous cord insertion can be associated with that is a big problem is vasoprevia. And as I said before, that is when the umbilical cord vessels cross or lie near the cervix within the fetal membranes, okay? This leads to the vessels being at risk of tearing or rupturing when the cervix begins to dilate during labor. And if that happens, that can result in pretty significant blood loss for the baby and it can happen pretty quickly. Remember, these little babies don't have a ton of blood volume. They're little tiny humans, and it doesn't take long for them to lose a significant amount of their blood volume, even though it may not look like a lot of blood, but it's substantial because they don't have a lot of blood to begin with, okay? So, just like all of the other things, vasoprevia is typically diagnosed during routine prenatal ultrasound exams. And you can see it on ultrasound if you see that the blood vessels are crossing the cervix, or if we do color Doppler to look for blood flow, you can see that there's some color flow near the cervix. There are two types of vasoprevia. One is when the vessels are kind of free floating. And type two is when the vessels are within that velamentous cord insertion. Type one, as you might imagine, when vessels are just kind of free floating out there, carries a higher risk of fetal harm because of the vessels potentially tearing. This is the one condition where cesarean birth is appropriate in order to minimize the risk of 
vessel injury during labor. Because remember, again, as that cervix opens, if those blood vessels rupture, it can lead to rapid fetal blood loss that can put the baby at risk for severe anemia, um, suffering from a lack of oxygen, even fetal death. So we really have to be careful about monitoring vasoprevia, closely monitoring the pregnancy, no vaginal exams, and then really hospitalization often during the towards the end of pregnancy and then a planned cesarean birth well before we believe labor starts in order to minimize the risk of those vessels being injured in the event labor happens. Okay, and the last thing that can be diagnosed during pregnancy during routine uh, ultrasound examination is a two-vessel cord or a single umbilical artery. As I mentioned at the top of the show, the umbilical cord usually has two arteries and one vein. However, sometimes there's a condition where the umbilical cord only contains two vessels, and usually it's just one artery and one vein, okay? So in the case of a two-vessel umbilical cord, one of the arteries is, is absent. It's, this is not very common. It happens in maybe like 2% of pregnancies. It's actually generally considered a variation of normal anatomy. However, we do have to be mindful because it can be associated with some other things. There's a slightly higher association between a two-vessel umbilical cord and some chromosome abnormalities. So if we see a two-vessel umbilical cord on ultrasound, we will probably offer you genetic testing if you haven't already had it done. A two-vessel umbilical cord can, in rare circumstances, also be associated with fetal growth issues, okay? And it can also be associated with other anomalies like kidney anomalies or heart anomalies. So when we see that, then we have to do a very careful look and make sure everything else looks okay. Again, do that frequent testing and monitoring just to make sure that the baby is growing well. We don't have to do anything different in terms of delivery, unlike the VASA previous situation. We just have to monitor things closely. Most of the time, this does not end up being anything of any consequences. It doesn't require any specific changes to the, to the delivery plan, okay? Expecting parents who are looking for great nursery decor, this message is for you. As you prepare for the beautiful journey ahead, let Home Threads be your partner in creating a serene nest for your growing family. At HomeThreads.com, explore a collection designed for comfort and style during this special time. From cozy nursery essentials to soothing rocking chairs, Home Threads has everything to create the perfect home for your little one and always at the best value. If you like unique items, then you definitely need to check out Home Threads. We got a silver picture frame from Home Threads that is absolutely beautiful. It's one of those timeless classic items that will last for years to come and it fits in any space in your home. Be sure to visit homethreads.com forward slash Dr. Nicole today and receive a code for 15% off your first order. Home Threads, love where you live. 
Okay, so that's it for the big things that are diagnosed during ultrasound examination during pregnancy. That's marginal cord insertion, velamentous cord insertion, vasoprevia, that's the most serious one, and then that two-vessel cord. Now let's talk about things that can happen during the course of labor with the umbilical cord. First up is umbilical cord prolapse. So umbilical cord prolapse is a potentially very serious emergency that can occur when the umbilical cord slips through the cervix and is in front of the baby. So instead of the head coming first, the umbilical cord comes first. And the circumstances under which that happens are when the head is not really engaged in the pelvis and it's not like nice and well applied to the cervix and there's some space around the head and that allows the cord to slip down. It's pretty rare, happens in less than 1% of pregnancies. Um, it two forms that'll happen. Sometimes it's a cult where it's hidden. You can't see it or you can't feel it necessarily. Like it may not be apparent until you see fetal heart rate tracing abnormalities. And then you feel or look closer with ultrasound and see it there. And then overt is when it is straight, like hanging out of the vagina. That is very urgent because it can be compressed or occluded and that can cut off blood supply and oxygen supply to the baby. I have seen this a handful of times in my career. Uh, once, in fact, where a woman walked in and she said, something's hanging out of my vagina and it was indeed the umbilical cord. That baby thankfully ended up being well, but it does happen. Most often it's going to happen if your water gets broken early. Okay. So if we break your water too soon before the head is nice and well applied to the cervix, then that increases the risk of the umbilical cord prolapse. Um, when I've seen it happen outside of that instance, and there's one other instance I can think of where I saw it happen, it's going to be because we broke your water and made it happen. So that's one of the situations where we have to be careful about making sure we're not breaking your water before it's safe to do so. Some other things that increase the risk are if the head is not the first presenting part. So if the baby's breech, especially if the baby is footling breech, those feet are tiny and that leaves a lot of space around the feet for if you start dilating for the cord to come through, or if the baby is in a transverse presentation, meaning going across in your uterus, then that leaves some space for the cord to come through. If there's extra amniotic fluid, so there's lots of space for the baby to move around, then that increases the chances that the cord can come through first. Now, oftentimes you hear people say like they had an emergency cesarean birth and what they mean is more that it was urgent. Like if you have 20 or 30 minutes in between the time they said you had a C-section and when you had the C-section, that is not an emergency. However, umbilical cord prolapse, this is a true emergency cesarean birth. And by emergency, what I mean is we are ripping the cords out of the wall. Somebody has their hand in your vagina trying to hold up the head and keep that pressure off of the cord. Because again, when that, that cord comes down and if the head settles down on top of it, it can compress the cord and lead to the baby not getting blood flow and oxygen, and that can be catastrophic, right? So someone is going to be hands in your vagina trying to elevate the head. So it is, or whatever is the presenting part, if it happens to be the butt or whatever 
to keep it off of the cord. We are running to the OR and that is a true, true stat emergency cesarean section. Okay. It requires truly immediate medical attention and intervention in order to make sure that the baby has a good outcome. And I I will say most often babies do have a good outcome as long as it's recognized and addressed quickly, but this is a true, true emergency cesarean birth and appropriately so. Okay, moving on, umbilical cord compression. Umbilical cord compression is as it sounds. It's when the umbilical cord is compressed or squeezed, and that can occur during the course of labor is when most often we'll see it. There are some characteristic changes in the fetal heart rate tracing that make us suspicious that the umbilical cord is being compressed. And if it's continually compressed, that can potentially lead to the baby being in fetal distress. So it can happen for a variety of reasons. Sometimes the baby's positioning, the baby just rolls over onto the cord and the cord gets compressed, okay? The baby's body or limbs press against the cord. In that instance, that's why when we see these characteristic decelerations or drops in the baby's heart rate, one of the first things we're going to do is try to move you in different ways because if the baby's on the cord, then we want to get the baby off of the cord. Low levels of amniotic fluid, oligohydramnios, Oligo means low hydramniosis fluid can increase the likelihood of umbilical cord compression because there's less fluid to cushion and protect the cord. Okay. Also nuchal cord, which I'll talk about in a minute is when the cord is wrapped around the baby's neck. That can sometimes lead to compression during labor if the cord becomes really tight. Okay. If the cord becomes really, really tight. Okay. Now, some signs and symptoms, as I mentioned, of umbilical cord compression are specific changes or drops in the fetal heart rate. They're called variable decelerations. A lot of times people want to look at the baby's heart rate and say, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Honestly, that is what the nurses and physicians, midwives, that is what we all go to school for in order to interpret those fetal heart rate tracings. So please don't think that you're going to be able to, to understand exactly what all of those things mean. But there are some characteristic things that we look for in the fetal heart rate tracing. And again, because it can reduce the blood flow to the baby, we just try and move, move you around to move the baby off of the cord. Sometimes if it's because the fluid is low or the water has been broken artificially or even naturally, sometimes we do something called an amnio infusion where we actually add fluid back into the uterus in order to try to create some space and try to relieve that compression. Most often these things resolve any issues with umbilical cord compression with position changes, um, or in that instance of, um, or amnio infusion, like I talked about. So this typically does not end up being a major issue. If it does, then unfortunately our only recourse is cesarean birth. If the typical measures don't work, then cesarean birth is the right thing because obviously you can't keep having your baby having oxygen getting cut off. That's not going to be good. Okay. Next up is nuchal cord. Nuchal cord is when the umbilical cord is wrapped around the baby's neck. Nuchal refers to the neck. Okay. It's when the umbilical cord is wrapped around the neck. This is so, so common happens in up to about a third of pregnancies. Very, 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 very common. 
Most often the cord is loosely wrapped around the baby's neck. It can also be draped around the body. It does not cause any complications or harm to the baby. You can actually see it sometimes on prenatal ultrasound. I think most often these days we actually don't mention it because it gives people an unnecessary sense of panic because it does not cause any problems. Or we can notice it during monitoring and labor like, oh, we're having some drops in the heart rate here and there. Maybe there's a cord wrapped around the baby's neck. It's generally considered pretty harmless. Now, there are some suspicions that it can be an issue if it becomes wrapped really tight around the baby's neck. And you can understand why that might be a problem if that's going to restrict the blood flow of oxygen and nutrients through the umbilical cord. If it's wrapped really tight, that can lead to fetal distress and we will see more severe changes in the fetal heart rate monitoring. But most often it is not an issue. And it can be wrapped around multiple times. I think the most I've seen a cord wrapped around is four times wrapped around a baby's neck. So it can definitely be wrapped around multiple times. There's not a lot that we can do to unwrap the nuchal cord. The baby may unwrap themselves from the nuchal cord. Uh, So there's not anything that we can specifically do to change that. But again, it does not typically pose a risk to baby. The vast majority of babies are born healthy despite having a nuchal cord. And then last thing I'll say is nuchal cord is more likely to occur, as you might imagine, if the cord is particularly long. There's more of the cord there for the baby to get twisted up in, or if there's more fluid so the baby has like more space to kind of wrap around in the cord. Okay, and then last thing that is seen potentially during labor or birth is umbilical cord knots. So knots in the umbilical cord are when the the cord literally forms a loop and it looks like a knot in the cord, okay? And we believe that these develop as the baby moves around in the womb. The baby just twists and forms loops in the umbilical cord. True knots happen in the umbilical cord when it is truly an actual knot, like it looks like a knot. They are pretty rare happening in one to 2% of pregnancies. This is another time where the cord being longer is going to increase the risk. If the cord is longer than average, that's going to increase the risk of true knots in the cord. Um, And then false knots are more like kinks or twists. They kind of look like a knot. They're more caused by the presence of blood vessels that branch off from the main cord and then, excuse me, rejoin the cord and it looks like a loop-like structure. So those are false knots. But true knots are literally true knots. They're actually kind of cool to see because when you think about the gymnastics of what has to happen in order for the baby to loop itself through the cord like that, it really literally looks like a knot. Now, depending on how tight the knot is, it can increase the risk to the baby, okay? If the knot becomes too tight, as you can imagine, we're going to be cutting off or interfering with the blood flow of oxygen and nutrients through the core that's going to lead to distress and complication. They are usually discovered through labor. So we're usually going to have a suspicion that there's an umbilical cord knot during labor because of changes in the baby's heart rate when those contractions are squeezing the baby, putting the baby under distress. If there's a knot in the cord and that adds additional distress, we may see that. 
Not all cord knots lead to any complications though. Many, 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 many times I've been at births where there was a true knot noted in the cord and there was no suspicion of anything going on whatsoever. So really we just manage it based on what the fetal heart rate tracing looks like. If there's some suspicion that the baby's in distress, then we may need to do a C-section or try what's called intrauterine resuscitative measures in order to perk the baby up while still inside of your uterus. But most often this is something that we don't see until after the birth and then after delivery and we see, oh, here's the knot. Um, either it's a surprise or it's like, oh, this is the reason why we were seeing those changes in the heartbeat. Hey, so you made it this far in the episode and I'm thinking it's because you enjoyed this podcast. Well, if that's the case, then I have a favorite to ask. Creating and producing the All About Pregnancy into Birth podcast has been one of the greatest joys of my life. I'm so grateful to have each and every one of you on this journey with me. Your support and engagement means the world to me, and it's what helps keep this podcast going. But here's the thing. Producing a podcast involves time, effort, and resources from recording equipment to an editor, hosting fees, coordinating guests, countless hours spent researching and crafting content. It all adds up. And that's where I could use your support. I've never wanted to turn all about pregnancy and birth into a paywall. I want it to remain accessible to everyone. That's why I've set up a way for you to support the show financially if you're able and willing. If this podcast has helped you during your pregnancy, your birth, or your life, I'm asking you to consider contributing to the show. Your support will help cover production and team costs and ensure that I can continue delivering the episodes you love. So in the month of March, head to drnicolerankins.com forward slash support and contribute whatever you can. Your support, no matter how big or small, makes a significant impact. It helps us continue delivering high quality content and ensures the future of all about pregnancy and birth. Again, that's drnicolerankins.com forward slash support. Thank you so much for being part of the All About Pregnancy and Birth community. Now back to the show. Now, last couple things about the umbilical cord that can happen during labor or in the hospital that you want to consider or maybe want to know more information about are delayed cord clamping and umbilical cord blood banking. And let's talk about delayed cord clamping. Delayed cord clamping is the practice of waiting to cut the umbilical cord. It needs to be for at least 30 to 60 seconds, or it can be up until the cord stops pulsating, which is going to be about three to four minutes, maybe a little bit longer. Back in the day, we used to immediately clamp the cord within like 15 or 20 seconds of birth. But now evidence has pretty convincingly shown that delayed cord clamping is beneficial both to term babies and preterm babies. That extra blood flow that's coming through the placenta while we're waiting for the placenta to detach from the wall of the uterus, it contains iron, it contains stem cells, that can boost the baby's health, boost the baby's immune system. It can increase the iron stores in the baby's blood, which will reduce the risk of anemia. There's even some evidence that it may help improve brain development. So really delayed cord clamping should be routinely done at every birth. As long as the baby comes out looking well and doesn't need any resuscitation, then delayed cord clamping should be done. 
It is recommended by World Health Organization, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the American Academy of Pediatrics. It should be routine, both in term and preterm babies and at vaginal birth and cesarean birth. Delayed cord clamping can still be done at cesarean birth. And then the final thing I'm going to talk about is umbilical cord blood banking. Umbilical cord blood banking is when you collect and store blood from the umbilical cord immediately after the baby's birth. The umbilical cord contains cells that are very important or powerful. They're called hematopoietic stem cells. They have the potential to develop into various types of blood cells in the body. And they can be used for potential medical use. There's some cancers and things that stem cells can be used to treat. Now, there are two types of core blood banking, private core blood banking and public core blood banking. So public core blood banks collect and store donated core blood units, and they are made available for public use, okay? It can be used for transplantation in individuals who need a stem cell transplant and do not have a suitable match with their family. Um, These are at no cost to donors. There's not a lot of indications that we can use core blood, but we're finding more and more indications for its use. And with public core blood banking, you give it to the bank and it's given and you don't have any say over what happens to it after that, similar to if you donated blood at a regular blood bank. Okay. Now the other option is private core blood banking and private core blood banking. You choose to store your baby's cord blood in a private cord blood bank for your family's exclusive use. They charge a fee for collection, for processing, for storing the cord blood and it's reserved solely for the use of the baby or potentially compatible family members. Now, a couple things with private core blood banking, the chances are very low that a child or a family member will develop a condition where the blood can be used. It's less than one in a thousand, okay? There are also instances where people cannot use their own core blood cells. So for example, if you are diagnosed with certain types of blood disorders, then they're not going to use your core blood cells in order to try and treat the disorder because your own core blood cells may contain the disorder in the core blood cells. Okay. And then often there's not enough blood collected from the umbilical cord in order to be used as a unit by itself. So the amount of blood that is collected is not enough for transplantation. Only 8 to 12% of units that are collected at birth are like by themselves enough in order to be enough for transplantation. You have to combine it with other people's cord blood in order to get enough for transplantation. Also, umbilical cord blood banking, if you do delay cord clamping, then you're going to have less blood at the umbil- that's going to be collected for the umbilical cord blood bank because that blood is going into the baby. So there's going to be less blood collected if you do delay cord clamping, or if you want to try and collect more blood for umbilical cord blood banking, then you're going to not have the benefits of delay cord clamping. And then the final thing I'll say is that private cord blood banking is expensive, especially up front. So they know that people are going to over time be like, you know what, I don't really maybe need to keep 
paying for the storage fees. So they're really charged like a big fee up front in order to get recoup, you know, a big amount of money in the beginning because they know a lot of folks are are not going to maintain storage. This is my two cents. I don't know that private core blood banking is worth it financially, unless you know you have a family history of some blood disorders and conditions, because it's just not likely that it's going to be used or that you're going to need to use it. I do think if you have the option of public core blood banking, that's a lovely way to help someone else is to have those cord blood cells collected to be used in a public bank. You do not need to change your thoughts about delayed cord clamping. You know, you still do delayed cord clamping and then whatever is left is left can be potentially donated to a public core blood bank. There are not a lot of hospitals that have public core blood banks. So if that's something that you're interested in, typically they bring it up in the hospital. Is this something you want to be interested in or in your prenatal care? But you can always ask at the hospital if that is an option. Okay. And then the final thing I want to end with is just some of the traditions around the umbilical cord around the world and things that we do with the umbilical cord. We know that cutting the cord has various traditions and rituals because it's associated with being separated from your mother. So we know in the U.S. typically we do a pretty simple cord clamping and cutting soon after birth. Often the partner does it. It doesn't have to be the partner. It can be whoever. It can be the mother if she wants to do it. Some dads do not want to cut the cord and that is totally fine. It's usually done with sterile scissors right there with mom on baby's belly. You can ask if you want. Definitely ask the nurses if they can take a picture of the cord being cut if that's something that is important to you. But that is the act that will symbolize the actual physical separation of you from your baby. Now, in other cultures, they do things like umbilical cord burning. In some cultures, the cord is dried and burned as a way to symbolize the separation between the mother and her baby. The rituals are believed to promote healing, also believed to protect the child from certain illnesses. In some Native American traditions, the cord is dried and burned in the sacred fire to honor the connection between the baby, their ancestors, and the earth. In some Malaysian and Indonesian traditions, the umbilical cord is buried under a plant, typically a rice plant, and that plant is later used to make a special dish. And that ritual is believed to bring good fortune and health to the child. In some Central American cultures, particularly among the Mayan people, the umbilical cord is dried and burned in a ceremonial fire, and then the ashes are scattered in a sacred place as a symbolic way to protect the child's spirit and ensure their well-being. And then the Maasai people of East Africa, which I had the privilege of seeing when I was in college. And when I was in college, I studied abroad for a year in Kenya. And the Maasai people are in that portion of East Africa, Kenya, Tanzania. They have a tradition where the umbilical cord is dried. It's wrapped in a package made of animal hide and and placed in a special tree. And the belief is that this ritual will ensure the child's connection to their homeland and to ancestral spirits. 
Some other cultures also bury the umbilical cord in a special location in order to symbolize the connection between the child and their roots. So in Chinese culture, the umbilical cord can be dried, wrapped in a piece of red cloth, and chosen in a specific location that is based on cultural beliefs or family customs. It may be near the family home. It may be under a tree. And it's seen as a way to, again, symbolically connect the child to their ancestral land and promote good health and good fortune. In the Philippines, it's common to bury the umbilical cord. It's wrapped in a piece of cloth, placed in a container, buried in a location that is chosen to be significant and meaningful by the family. And that burial is supposed to foster a strong connection for the child to their birthplace and to their family's roots. And then in some Scandinavian countries like Sweden and Norway, there's a tradition of burying the umbilical cord in a special place, again, often in the family garden or near a tree in order to help the child develop a strong connection to nature and the environment. Okay, so just to recap, the umbilical cord is what connects your baby to the placenta. It's the lifeline that does all the transport of nutrients, of waste, everything while your baby is developing. Some issues that may occur or be diagnosed during pregnancy are marginal cord insertion, where the cord inserts at the edge, filamentous cord insertion, where the vessels are exposed, Vasa previa, which is the most serious one and requires cesarean birth, that's when the vessels are near the cervix, and then two-vessel umbilical cord or single umbilical artery. During labor, the things we have to be careful for or watch out for are umbilical cord prolapse, umbilical cord compression. Also, we often see or yeah, I would say often <laughs> see nuchal cord during labor. Sometimes you can see knots in the cord. Typically, neither of those cause any issues at all. And then delayed cord clamping should be routinely done in all births, both vaginal and cesarean births. And then umbilical cord banking banking is really a personal choice, although it can be expensive and you're not likely to use it later on. There are public options where you can give to public cord blanks banks as well. All right. So there you have it. Do me a solid. If you like this episode, if you like this podcast, share it with three friends who you know may find it useful, whether they are pregnant, thinking about getting pregnant, work in the birth space, sharing is caring. I'm on a mission to reach and serve as many people as I can, and I would appreciate your help in doing so. So share this podcast, hit that share button wherever you're listening to me right now. Also subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to me right now. Leave me an honest review in Apple podcast or shoot me a DM. I love to hear what you think about the show. I love to hear ideas and topics for the show. I actually had a few people reach out and ask about umbilical cord things. So that kind of prompted me to do this episode. So I'm on Instagram at Dr. Nicole Rankins. Shoot me a DM there. Let me know what you think. So that is it for this episode. Do come on back next week and remember that you deserve a beautiful pregnancy and birth. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.